So I'm going to ask you all to go to Romans chapter 9, if you would do that. Romans chapter 9, I'm going to give you some reason to celebrate this morning. I want to help you better celebrate what God has given you in Jesus. I've never heard of anybody who ever wrote a song about predestination. Have you? I just can't think of it. And this is yet what we're looking at this morning in Romans chapter 9, that this is something you need to be celebrating what God has given you in Jesus. And maybe you're going to be moved to write a song after the service this morning about what you're about to hear. And I start with this thought in mind. I have to begin by recognizing that I personally, and I'm talking about myself, and I think this is probably true of you, I vastly undervalue the glory of God. Is that true for you this morning? I think I really undervalue it, and I probably significantly misunderstand it. So God has to say things to us to get our attention on this issue. One of them you see on the screen. It's from Ezekiel 28, verse 22. I will be glorified in your midst. Here's what I know. God wouldn't need to tell us that if we understood it. He wouldn't need to remind us, you're going to do this if we're already doing it. See, he had to tell us because we don't grasp it very well. So he goes on to say things like this in Isaiah 43, verse 20. The beast of the field will glorify me. The people whom I formed for myself will declare my praise. See, that's a future tense. It's going to happen. Glory is a big deal with God. How we bring him glory, how we put him on display. Jesus talked about this very thing in the night that he was betrayed, we just talked about in communion, is the same night in which he was arrested, and just before he's arrested, he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he begins talking to the Father in heaven about something that's really heavy on his heart. Look with me on the screen at Jesus' own words, John 17, 5, now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was." See, glory is a big deal with God. Jesus is even thinking about it on his deathbed. Restore me to that place again, Father, because the glory you and I have, we share it together. And I I would add very quickly that I not only undervalue and misunderstand the glory of God, I would also add that I grossly, grossly underestimate the depth of my own sin. I think that's true of everybody in humanity. We think of it as not such a big deal, and we also minimize God's glory at the same time. So I asked you this question last week when we ended. How do we better put God on display in our life? If God is significant to us, if if he's someone we're in relationship with, how do I better display him in my social relationships? And here's what this has done for me this last week. It's created an awareness that I'm not going to do a very good job at something, at celebrating something I don't really understand. I can't effectively celebrate what I don't fully appreciate. Here's a way to simply understand that. When my wife and I began dating and I realized that she didn't know a whole lot about football, I determined to sit down and watch a football game with her. And so I thought, well, I'll just work with her through it and help her celebrate the things that I celebrate when I like to watch football. So we're watching a professional football game. And we watch a guy run down the field, receive a Hail Mary pass, runs into the end zone, spikes it in the middle of the end zone, and the crowd erupts and begins celebrating. And my wife says, oh, that's so great. Look at, he just scored a run when he crossed home plate. I'm like, what? No, that's not what happened. No, that's the wrong terms. Well, she couldn't fully celebrate what she didn't fully understand. 
We can't fully celebrate what we don't fully understand, and that's why we need to look at this, because if you understand God's eternal action, God's eternal action toward you is not conditional. In other words, it's not based on things that you did, but rather on who he is, you will celebrate. You will praise him better. And that translates to putting God on display. So last week where we ended, we talked about the fact that God is showing no partiality whatsoever, and God is also not unjust in any way whatsoever. Look with me on the screen at 2 Chronicles 19.7. This is an Old Testament way of saying it. With the Lord our God, there is no injustice or partiality. And then Paul says almost the exact same thing in Romans 9, verse 14, where your Bible's open right now. He said it this way, there is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. See what's going on? Paul's anticipating a protest because he's just been working through this thing called predestination. He's been working through this thing in election in chapter 9, and he anticipates somebody pushing back saying, if God elects people to salvation, if he predestines them, is he not unjust? Let me remind you of the verses from last week, verses 13 and 14. Romans 9, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Romans 9, 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. If you're not familiar with those passages, I encourage you to go back to what I taught last week online. Go to our website and watch that. Get caught up on why God said that about Jacob and Esau. Now, I'm old enough and I've lived long enough that I understand that there is always a question behind the question. When someone looks at this and they say, well, if he chooses some and not others, that seems totally unfair, doesn't it? To say that God is not just in his actions toward Jacob and toward Esau in this story, misses the bigger picture. And the bigger picture is this. Neither one of them had a claim on God. You don't have a claim on God this morning. You don't have a claim on him. And I'm going to help you to understand that, why I say it that particular way. So in chapter 9, here's what Paul reminds us. God chose Isaac over Ishmael. God chose Jacob over Esau, and he did so sovereignly, not because of who they would be, not because of the things that they would do, but because of who God is. Before they were ever born, Scripture says, he did this in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, because of him who calls. It didn't have anything to do with their status as a person. In other words, it's completely on the basis of God's purposes. So here's our natural human response. That's not fair. That doesn't sound like a just God. How could he choose one over another before they even have the opportunity to prove themselves? Well, that's the equivalent of saying there's injustice with God. He's not just. So Paul's going to ask the question as we get into this in the month of June, rhetorically, can we accuse God? Do we have the right to accuse him? Now, I say that in the month of June because next week is uh, Mother's Day. We're not going to do predestination on Mother's Day, right? And, and, and we're not going to get into it on groundbreaking day on the 20th when we're out at the new property. By the way, I said to Kyle this week, it seems really um, presumptuous on our part to schedule a groundbreaking before you guys even voted. But we're, we're going on the fact that maybe you're predestined to approve the building, Okay. <laughs> Okay, let me get back on track. <laughs> in, in Romans 9, Paul's making this, this brilliant argument about why God gets to do the things he gets to do. 
And very quickly, I'm just going to show you three quotes from individuals who are looking at this same passage. One of them is Emil Bruner. He wrote this back in the 1940s about God's actions this way. Read this with me. God's sovereign freedom means inequality. Inequality, however, always arouses in us the feeling of injustice. We want to measure God by our yardstick, but God's righteousness cannot be measured by our standards. It includes his absolute sovereign freedom, else he would not be the God who freely bestows. See, we want God to freely bestow his love on us. We want him to freely bestow his blessings on us. We want him to freely bestow his goodness. Bruner's observation is absolutely correct. In order for him to freely do anything, sovereignly to do what he will, he has to be free in all areas. Otherwise, he wouldn't be the God who freely bestows God said it even better than that. Look with me on the screen at Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Remember that original thought question? Then how in the world, Mark, can humans be held accountable? If he predetermines the rejection, how can my friends be held accountable before God? And I will tell you right now, if that's your line of thinking or maybe the line of thinking of your friends, they're looking at it backwards. They're kind of coming in through the back door as though we have some claim on God. Scripture says we're all sinners in need of a Savior, meaning we've already fallen. We're already under condemnation. I know this is complicated stuff, but I just want to lean into these quotes with you for that reason. Now, John Kelvin, all the way back in the 1500s, he said it this way, predestination is truly a labyrinth from which the mind of man is wholly incapable of extricating itself. But the curiosity of man is so insistent that the more dangerous it is to inquire into a subject, the more boldly he rushes to do so. (laughs) Amen and amen, right? We just want to know more. I want to understand this. I can't make sense of it. It's driving me crazy. I think it's really significant that Paul offers no logical explanation for the compatibility of God's sovereignty with the equal biblical teaching that God is meticulously fair. He's both. So we would do well to follow Paul's approach, affirm the truth of these amazing doctrines without weakening them, Don't try and take the legs out from underneath them. Just recognize it is a mystery. Here's something that is not a mystery. God has always been and will forever be righteous. Maybe you didn't all hear that. God has always been and will forever be righteous. That is worth saying amen to. That's worth glorifying him over. Here's the last quote. Lenski said it this way, righteousness belongs to the very nature of God. The fact that God is righteous is self-evident and is settled as being self-evident. To prove it is like trying to prove that whiteness is white, that the sun is light, that God does not sin. Jeremiah is kind of writing about the same thing about the relationship that you have, the God that you know, the God whom you understand to be loving, and you understand him correctly if you understand him that way. Jeremiah said it this way in chapter 9, verse 23. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might, and let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts, boast of this. Catch this? That he understands me? That he knows me? 
that I am the God who exercises loving kindness and justice and righteousness on all the earth. See, I'm all these things. So if you know the God who is those things, boast in that. So this leaves us with the issue. God is holy, therefore he has to punish sin. But God is love, therefore he saves sinners. Now, if everyone is automatically saved, it denies his holiness. But if everyone is lost, it denies his love. So what do you do with the dilemma? And I will tell you that the the solution to the problem is God's sovereign election. That's where Paul goes with this in verse 15 when he says, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. If you have your Bible in your hand, you don't mind flipping over there. You can go to Exodus 33. You don't have to. It'll be on the screen as well. But we need to dive into the story a little bit with Moses on Mount Sinai in order to understand why Paul just quoted the statement God made to Moses. Here's the deal. Moses has just come through one of the most brutal experiences of his life. He's been on Mount Sinai. And he's received these stone tablets from God in which God, we're told according to the Bible, carved into the tablets the Ten Commandments with his own finger, giving commandments to people, handing it to Moses, and Moses comes down the mountainside holding these tablets. But as he approaches the camp of Israel, he begins hearing the shouting, the celebration, the party going on among the people. So what his brother has done while he's gone is he's led the people, and the people have followed willingly into this making of a golden calf. They've taken all their jewelry, and they melted it down, and they shape it into the form of a calf, and they begin worshiping this golden calf, celebrating it as though it's something great. So God's got a response to the rebellion. God says to Moses, here's what's going to happen, Moses. I'm commanding that you put 3,000 men to death over this issue. You're going to execute them, and I want you to carry it out immediately. Yet as you read the story, if you go to Exodus 32 and 33, you understand that if God had wanted to, he would have been perfectly just in wiping out the nation that he chooses to only execute 3,000 is done as a warning to the nation. So I'm guessing, and I'm just speculating here, that man number 3,001, 3,002, 3,003, 3,004 are really glad that God didn't choose them that he didn't choose to exercise judgment over them and bring out his sovereign power. Now, Moses, for his part, is shocked by this horrific rebellion. He calls it a great sin. This is a bitter action you've taken against God, especially on the heels of God having rescued these people from Pharaoh and bringing them out of Egyptian slavery. So Moses does something absolutely remarkable, incredibly humble, and he begins interceding for these people, and you find that in Exodus 32, 32. Now, if you will, he's talking to God the Father, Forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. We looked at this verse about a month ago and I asked you the question, would you be willing to go to hell that someone else might be saved? Paul essentially said the same thing. God, 
I would surrender my relationship with Jesus if it meant you would save my entire nation. So you find Moses doing the exact same thing, saying, take me out of the book of life. If you won't forgive them, I I don't even want to go to heaven. I want you to be with us, Father, but I want you to save the entire nation. Now, God's response is especially telling. Watch in verse 33, chapter 32. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. Do you notice that it's now singular? God was dealing with the nation as a whole. You execute 3,000 of them, Moses. It's going to be a sign to the entire nation. I will not put up with rebellion. But now he goes singular with Moses, and he says, I'm going to deal with individuals, and I will blot those ones out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Now Moses goes into a position where he begins asking God to reveal himself. God, I've done all kinds of things that you've asked me to do. Will you now show me yourself? And God says, I will show you part of me, Moses, but I can't show you all of me or you're going to die. But I'll make my goodness pass before you. Look with me at Exodus 33, 19. I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and you will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. That's exactly what Paul just quoted in Romans chapter 9. Why is Paul leaning into this Old Testament story? Because God has just shown mercy to people he didn't need to show mercy to. He's a just God, and he could have taken them out. So his sparing is purely of mercy. It's purely of grace. No one deserved the mercy. See, God's sovereignty and God's grace are completely inseparable. They're harmonious because they all sinned. They all deserved condemnation. So you and I cringe when we come to verses like Romans 3.23. Anybody happen to remember Romans 3.23 want to quote it out loud for us? That's right. Excellent. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And that causes the cringe factor, like, oh, yeah. I'm one of those people on the side of the mountain of Sinai. I worship the calf. I've done sinful things. It's cringeworthy because we're all under condemnation. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So that reality means no one is wronged unjustly if God condemns. That's justice. So right now, New Hope, you have to praise God for his mercy toward you because his mercy toward any person is purely by grace. See, if you're going to take this a step further... If God's reaction depended on man's accomplishment, on the things that we do, both good and bad, he would have had to punish all of Israel. But instead, what he did is he gave a rebellious people a glimpse of his grace thousands of years ago in the Old Testament. This is what grace looks like. This is really important for you to remember because we've all sinned. We've all come short of the glory of God. So that means before God, we have no rights whatsoever. We have no claim on him. That's why mercy is so crucial. So can I just get agreement from you right now? God's mercy is amazing. His his grace is amazing. His mercy is amazing. 
So Paul sums it up in the next two verses, 16. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or on the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And he's simply saying, Paul is in the most straightforward method possible. All of your human effort, all the things you try to accomplish to make God like you better, all of that falls short. It just leaves you in a position of being condemned. We, we can't clear ourselves. So if we are saved, if, underline, we are saved, it's only because God chooses to show mercy. Because God's purposes want to be accomplished according to God's will. So here's a thought. God's purpose does not set aside human responsibility. So God's purpose is going to be accomplished because it's his will, but it doesn't set aside your responsibility to respond. Let me give you an example from the book of Hebrews. Hebrews speaks about the patriarchs doing something by faith. Look with me on the screen. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 20, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. By faith, Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph. What's going on there? God chose them. God already said, this is what's going to happen. But by faith, these guys had to take action. And so Jacob blesses his sons and his son's sons. Isaac blesses his sons. He had to take action. So although God elects, it doesn't mean Israel had nothing to do with the rejection or the rebellion. And that leads us to the final component in verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So Paul's reaching even further back into this story of Pharaoh. And he begins pointing to this one who we think is probably Pharaoh, Amenhotep. I don't know if you're interested in Egyptian history, but Amenhotep II seems to be a match for the biblical Pharaoh that we're looking at here. Here's what we know about him both from the Bible and from history. This guy's incredibly brutal. He is ruthless. He is vicious. He executes willingly and wantingly wherever he wants, but yet we're told that God has raised him up in order to put God's power on display. So the God of history puts a king in a position to demonstrate a greater purpose, and the greater purpose is this, to bring glory to his name throughout the whole earth. So as you read the story, you find that God indeed did do that by bringing the children out of Egypt, by rescuing them and taking them across the Red Sea. He put the fear of God in people who didn't previously know God. Let me point you to Joshua. In Joshua chapter 2, we see something going on here. You've got a prostitute talking to Joshua about the things that she understands now about who this God is. Jo Joshua chapter 2, verse 9, the terror of you has fallen on us, and all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted, and no courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. So you've got a Gentile woman who's a prostitute living in another foreign land, who's saying, that God is God in heaven. And God's purposes are accomplished. People living around the world, 3,000 years later, we're still talking about this. 
So Pharaoh rises to this position of authority because God's at work in his career. Do you think God's at work in your life? Is God at work in your career? Has God placed you in the social circle that you're in today? For what purpose? To bring glory and honor to himself. In the case of Pharaoh, so that his capacity to deliver would be known throughout the whole world. So what emerged from this were not Pharaoh's purposes, but God's purposes. See, it's that same purpose of God, that same power to rescue and deliver that you just celebrated in communion. You lifted up the cup, you lifted up the bread, and you said, this is true of me. I bring glory to God because he's rescued me. He's coming again. And so I glorify his name because of his redemptive power. And I will tell you that God showed infinitely greater power to deliver through the cross than what he did by bringing the children of Israel out of Egypt. Infinitely greater power to forgive your sin and to defeat Satan. So here's the last verse, and it's a really hard one. Verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. I would say that's a really difficult statement for modern readers. Some will read a statement like that. As maybe, maybe that's you in this auditorium right now. Maybe you're watching online, and you're thinking, if that's the God of the Bible, I'm out. Who wants to be with one like that? I don't want that. Hear me if that's what you're thinking. Maybe you have friends that are thinking that way. To fault God for showing mercy to some while hardening others is requiring him to conform to our flawed concept of justice. And our concept is flawed. Now, I'll agree with you. God's actions in the Bible are more difficult for us to understand in 2018 than for those who lived in the biblical period. That said, it is absolutely crucial to understand theology, and theology is the study of God. It is absolutely crucial to understand theology based on what the Bible says about God, not on the basis of my personal feelings, of what I think ought to be. So here's the really hard statement, and I know it seems like an awkward place to end, but look at this on the screen. He hardens whom he desires. That God hardens is only ever, is only ever followed by those who first hardened themselves. Neither in the story of Pharaoh nor anyone else living on this planet is God said to harden hearts of anyone who had not persistently already over and over and over again rejected God in the first place. So this is paramount. Hear this. Nowhere is God said to harden anyone first, except they harden themselves first. Let me use the story of Pharaoh. God did 10 amazing plagues in Egypt. History records it. The first five that God brought Pharaoh's way was to get his attention, to humble him, to make him bow the knee before God Almighty. But Scripture says, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Five times, Pharaoh rejected God, so 
for the last five plagues, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened the heart that had already been seared over with scar tissue that was willing to reject and say, I do not believe. So check this. Moses is a Jew. Pharaoh is a Gentile. Both men are sinners. Both are murderers. Both witnessed God's miracles. Both have the same evidence. Both have the same opportunity. Both saw God's amazing wonders. And with that same opportunity, what would they do with the wonders that they saw? Moses is eternally saved. Pharaoh is lost. He's hardened his heart against God. And both made a personal choice regarding what they're going to do with the information. So the fault is not on God with whom there is no injustice, but on Pharaoh. See, in both cases, the issue is never about man's rights, but it's about the glory of God and how he puts himself on display. So to end this, I just want to go to what Jesus said. Jesus made it very, very clear. None of us, none of us in this auditorium this morning, no one watching online right now, none of us are able to come to God unless he first drew us Look with me at John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. But the same God also said in John 8, 24, I said to you that you will die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So the same God says, I have to draw you, but you have to believe See what's going on, church? you got the balance of the two. So when Pharaoh or anyone else in your world chooses to reject God, that one is building up some scar tissue over the heart, and I hope that's not you this morning. I hope you're not stiff-arming God. That one chooses to harden their heart in the wrong direction. Now, it's true God used Pharaoh, but Pharaoh was not a mere puppet. He did what he wanted to do. That God doesn't bring about immediate death of all the rebellious people. It just means he's willing to endure, endure sin because he's giving opportunity to repent. Moses came to Pharaoh with five astounding miracles before God ever moved against Pharaoh. So here's what I know to be true. God presents opportunities. My decision is, how will I respond because the Bible is really clear. Anyone who comes to him, he will certainly not reject you. Look with me on the screen. John 6, 37, the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. You know what you're looking at right there, church? That's the action of man's free will. You're wondering, do you get a deal in this? Do I get any say in this? You come to God. You come to him of your actions. He will not reject you. That's the expression of man's action, which God graciously allows to those who believe in his son. Why? Because he is not willing that any would perish. Amen? He isn't. He isn't willing that any would perish. So hear this, church. If you take this out the door with you, I want you to remember this. God is not out to deliver condemnation. 
we're already under it. He's out to deliver mercy. He's out to deliver the rescue. The rescuer wants to rescue. So he's not out to deliver condemnation. He's out to deliver mercy. Therefore, God sent a Savior. And if you understand that you have sinned and you fall short of the glory of God and that you don't measure up, you're right. So praise God that he sent Jesus because Jesus measures up when we don't. Praise God, it doesn't depend on you, New Hope. It depends on him. Father, I pray for these individuals as we take on this week ahead of us. I pray that our hearts would be so surrendered to you this week that we will be looking for ways to put you on display. Help us to make you more famous, to, to bring your glory out, to celebrate you in ways that we perhaps haven't even imagined. I pray that that would be true this afternoon as we take on this day. God, we ask for your blessing on us now for having spent this time together studying your word. We ask for that in Jesus' matchless name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Have a great week, New Hope.